I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. If you spend any short amount of time on the Catholic Twitter of the world, which my recommendation would be don't spend time there, but if you do spend some time there, you might stumble across this little thing called the Liturgy Wars, which is basically just a bunch of people, sometimes even anonymous, faceless, nameless accounts, arguing about what kind of mass is the best, as in, is this mass or that mass more beautiful? Is this mass or that mass more orthodox? Is this mass or that mass more appropriate? And if you're not Catholic and you see the liturgy wars breaking out across Twitter, sometimes Instagram, a lot of times in Facebook comments, definitely on YouTube, even in the podcasting world, you might think to yourself, I thought mass was mass and the Eucharist was the Eucharist. And it is. Whether the mass is in Latin, Spanish, English, German, French, whether the mass includes music that is more contemporary or Gregorian chant or some myriad of those two mashed up together, which yes, I have seen, mass is mass. And receiving Jesus in the Eucharist is receiving Jesus in the Eucharist. And perhaps now more than ever, it's important to understand why that is such a significantly important thing in the lives of Catholic men and women. But more importantly than that, how we arrive at receiving the Eucharist and the way that sometimes we argue about that inside and outside baseball conversations about which form of the Mass is best, well, again, from the outside looking in, a non-Catholic stumbles upon those debates, discussions, and arguments, they might not really understand what's going on. Heck, even some Catholics, myself included, sometimes are flummoxed by the debates and the discussions and the arguments about Latin versus English, about ad orientum versus, versus populum, right? Whatever, whatever the discussion and the debate ends up becoming, at the end of the day, it boils down to, are we receiving Jesus in the Eucharist and how we arrived at a place where we're receiving Jesus in the Eucharist? The words that were said, the prayers that were prayed, the postures that were held. The liturgy wars are are, a dark moment, I think, within the life of the church, at least in 2022, played out across tiny screens in our pockets or big screens on our desks or whatever screen you might have found it on. But if you go sit inside of a parish in America, a parish that maybe does a more traditional liturgy or a parish that does a more contemporary modern one, a parish that makes use of traditional components in a mass that is still considered Novus Ordo, or, or again, some unique fashioning of all of it, what I think you'll find in the pews, at least in my experience, this is what I found, are just faithful men and women who want to receive the Eucharist and want to pray. And different types of prayer, whether it's a guitar and a praise song or chant and the priest ad orientum, different types of prayer affect people in different ways and lead people to holiness in different ways. Now, I, I'm trying to be as middle of the road as possible in this conversation. I love myself some praise and worship within the Mass. I adore Mass outdoors on a, on a youth group excursion. I am a huge fan of a homily that makes reference to things in pop culture and allows me to experience a bit of, of the regular world in which I live in this moment of authentic worship and prayer. I'm also a huge fan of Ad Orientum, Latin chant, give me all the smells, bells, whistles, and lace that you can find. And I think a lot of Catholics actually find themselves 
in that position of loving both and wanting to find a way to integrate what sometimes seems as a, a, a stark contrast, but is actually beautiful ways to engage in worship of our Lord and receive him in the Eucharist, the best thing that we can do as Catholics. And so I couldn't think of anybody better to sit down and really dig into this with, to have these conversations with, to try to understand the both and, the most Catholic phrase that we can have, than my friend, Father Timothy Grumbach, a priest of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, who, during COVID, learned how to say the extraordinary form of the Mass, the Latin Mass, as we sometimes call it, and still regularly, of course, says the Novus Ordo Mass, which is what he is typically saying within the Catholic high school that he works, and, and really hear his story. I wanted to hear his story about why. Why did he want to learn how to say the Latin Mass? What value did he find in it? How did it change his spirituality? How has he seen it affect the young people he works with? This conversation is not an attempt to solve the liturgy wars of online, but rather an attempt to show that those liturgy wars are dumb and silly in the first place. And that both and is the way to approach how the Mass happens. This is all part of our Ave Explorer series on the Mass. You can find everything we're creating over at AveMariaPress.com, completely for free. Podcasts, all of the amazing things that we've made on Instagram, our articles, different video conversations. You're going to love all of it. Available on AveMariaPress.com. And hey, by the way, if you click on over to our website right now, the link is down in the show notes too. We have a survey we'd love for you to fill out with your questions about the Mass. Next Monday, Father Blake Britton is going to join us over on Ave Maria Press's Instagram page, and we're going to answer those questions in real time. So we'd love it if you'd submit your questions. The link is down in the show notes. But for now, we're going to sit back and enjoy this conversation with Father Timothy Grumbach about the Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo Mass and how the two of them can work together to lead us to holiness. Well, Father Tim, welcome back or welcome to Ave Explorers. I know I've interviewed you before. It might have been for SiriusXM, but welcome to Ave Explorers. Oh, thanks, Katie. It's it's so good to be back. You know, I, I just always love our conversations, but in person or like this, it's just there's so much joy here. So. Yeah. So we've we've known each other for a couple of years. I think through yeah. like youth ministry. I say a couple of years longer than that. A couple of years ago was COVID, but wherever it's, we have so to blurry. be in the timeline of life, yeah, we've known yeah. each other through youth ministry things. Tell us a little bit of who you are and, and what you do as a priest. Sure. Yeah. So I I am a priest of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And I was ordained in 2017. And so I had about eight years of seminary before that. And so the, the years are stretching out. But uh, <laughs> as you can definitely say about the, the seminary, at least, is that the, the days are long, but the years are short. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And so I spent my first four years as a priest in St. Augustine's Parish in Culver City. So it's kind of West Los Angeles, really close to where I grew up, actually, in Santa Monica. And then the archbishop saw it fit to send me into high school ministry starting last July. So I've been here at Bishop Alemany High School in the San Fernando area. Mm-hmm. So I went from living at the beach to being a Val. I live in the Valley now. Yeah. And it's it's been one of the greatest joys of my priesthood, my young priesthood so far, which is to spend this year in high school ministry. I'm the, the chaplain at the school. So I'm so, saying mass every day, offering confession, you know, almost every other day. We're trying mm-hmm. to bump that up to a little mm-hmm. bit more, kind of build a culture of confession. Yeah. And uh, and I and I direct the retreats here. So we're in the middle of confirmation retreat season. So it, it's felt like almost every weekend I've been running up to, you know, hear confessions and do masses and hang out on confirmation retreats. So yeah. I, I don't sleep anymore is what I'm saying. <laughs> in good company with a lot of the parents yeah, in the world, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, tell, oh, us, yeah. tell us why you wanted to be a priest, Father. I know that's kind of a, a charged yeah. question, but it, <laughs> right, was that right. all, you know, some people have stories of ever since I was a little kid, 
Some people got dragged me kicking and screaming. What's yours? Yeah, I, I like to joke about it and say my surfing career didn't pan out. <laughs> and so I thought I'd become a priest. You know, it's a, yeah, so I actually dropped out of college before the end of my first year. I was at Pepperdine University in Malibu. I was mm. studying classic guitar and philosophy. It's like, there's so much to unpack there. Oh, it's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the beach was just too close. And so I, I started surfing full time and traveling around doing contests and trying to get into movies and, and magazines and all this stuff with, uh, you know, very mild success here and there. But it was a fun life and, and there's a lot of freedom there. But eventually it, it actually felt kind of imprisoning, which was kind of insane. Like surfing mm-hmm. supposed to be the most freeing thing in the world. But I, I just kept getting this sense, you know, I was helping out with retreats at my home parish and still helping out with confirmation and youth ministry. And God kept speaking to me like, I'm glad you're enjoying surfing, but that's not what I made you for. Mm-hmm. And I've got a greater adventure for you. And so I, I just remember walking down to one of my favorite surf spots here in California kind of up near Santa Barbara, a spot called the Queen of the Coast, Rincon. It's just so beautiful. You walk down this dirt path to one of the best waves in the area. And I just remember thinking like, this is great, but God's got something better in store for me. Mm. And you know, I didn't walk away from surfing at that point, but I, I remember my last contest was like, I got a terrible wave. My board hit me in the head and I just paddled in and said, I'm done. And that was my last contest, <laughs> but I still surf. But at that point, it was like, God's calling me to so much more than this great adventure I've already got. Mm. And growing up Catholic, I think everybody else knew I was going to be a priest from when I was very young. And I just kept running away from that Mm. and kept saying, my excuse was like, I want to be like my dad. I want to have a family, which is a beautiful desire that the Lord put on my heart. But uh, it, it took a lot of journeying and a lot of adventures and exploration to find out that the fatherhood the Lord is calling me to was, was priesthood. Mm. And it means so much to me, you know, like my fatherhood as a priest is not like plan B or like a consolation prize. Like it's a real fatherhood. Mm -hmm. And that's what drew me to the priesthood was the sense of spiritual fatherhood. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing to hear somebody talk about that because maybe it's just because Mother's Day is coming up when we're recording this. And we hear a lot of conversation about spiritual motherhood and the role, Mm -hmm. say, of of women religious or or single women or aunts and, and godmothers. And but sometimes spiritual fatherhood some people might think of it as patronizing, like, oh, no, don't think of me as your kid. But actually, it's 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 less, uh, oh, yeah, you're my child and more uh, I, I'm trying to guide and lead you in the right direction. It's it's a love mm-hmm. for a desire to share the truth. Speak to us. I mean, you're young. You've, you've been a priest for five years. I'm sure some of your spiritual children are, are older than you. What what mm-hmm. really is spiritual fatherhood like? Yeah, well, we've got to understand ourselves as you know, we as priests have to understand ourselves as sons first. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think of that, especially with kind of a Marian paradigm of faith, I would say as well, is that we all understand ourselves as children of God before we can understand ourselves as fathers and mothers. So, you know, Mary had to know herself as a daughter before she could become the mother of God. So she had to receive before Mm -hmm. she could give. And I would say that about the spiritual fatherhood and priesthood and, and any fatherhood really is that, you know, as a son first, you know, there's nothing I have that I haven't first been given. Mm. And there's nothing I've been given that I'm not meant to give away. And so to understand my fatherhood in that sense is like, I, I've been given so much as a priest that you know my life is about offering myself on the altar with Jesus and bringing other people to do that as well. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, spiritual fatherhood has a lot of counseling in the office, you know, a lot of marriage counseling. And, and you know, it's very clear too, like I'm, you know, I am in high school ministry now. And so, mm-hmm. you know, any of these students age-wise could be, uh, you know, a son or daughter of mine mm-hmm. if, you know, if I was a, a young father, but to 
you know, have that, that very clear, like I'm their spiritual father. I'm not here to be their friend. Mm. You know, there's some friendships that kind of build up and spending time with these kids, but, but ultimately I'm here to be their, their spiritual father. Mm -hmm. And that means haven't gotten anything that I'm not meant to give away. Mm. And even if they may not know it, my job here is to gather their hearts together on the altar at mass. Even if they're not coming to mass every morning, that's the most important thing that I do while I'm here on campus is offer the mass and offer their hearts and their prayers. It's really humbling when they do open up their hearts to me in that way. And you know, this whole first year on campuses, and there's so many things that I want to do and things I want to build up, but more important than anything, it's taken this whole year just to kind of win their trust yeah. and not try to be merely relatable, but to relate to them. Mm-hmm. And they can tell. High schoolers have a keen sense of when you're being fake just to be relatable. Yeah. But when you can sit down and relate to them, they, they can tell the difference. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that's kind of where I'm coming from with the idea of spiritual fatherhood. My husband's a biology teacher, and uh, he often tells me that it, something before the age of 18 gives you the biggest BS barometer. Like you can tell immediately <laughs> yeah. when somebody is not. Yeah. And I don't know if you lose it when you go to college and the world just gets even noisier. I don't, yeah. I don't know what it is where we eventually start to, to I, I think all of us deep down know authenticity versus fakeness, but teenagers mm-hmm. especially are tuned into that. You said something in there, yeah. Father, that I, I was struck by, and it's the most important thing that you can do is bring, sacrifice yourself on the altar in persona Christi, loaded Mm -hmm. phrase, but then to also bring the hearts of the people that you are shepherding to the altar. We've had this entire series on the mass. We've talked about the history. We've talked about the cultural expressions of the mass. We've we've talked about distractions in mass. And and now we have a chance to chat with the priest again. And nobody said that phrase yet, that that there's Mm -hmm. this sacrifice that happens that you, you are guiding us through. Tell us about that phrase, what it means to be the priest who stands at the altar and makes the sacrifice and brings our hearts to the sacrifice. Yeah. Gosh, I wish I could find it. I'm going to have to look it up maybe in a moment, but there's a a quote from Thomas Merton Mm. that begins with like, if you're afraid to to celebrate the mass, then don't become a priest because it's just talking about this, you know, this, this prying open of your heart Mm. and letting all of the, the sorrows and sufferings of the world into your heart and to see the openness of your heart. And that you have like the weight of the Lord's compassion upon your shoulders. You know, it's something like that. And it's, it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I received that from somewhere. I don't even know where it is that he wrote it down. I even like Google it a lot of the times. So I can't even find where it is. So I'd like, I don't you know. I know I didn't write it. But, <laughs> uh, you know, so, so Merton's name is connected to it. And it's a, this really powerful reminder that the most important thing that we do is offer our hearts on the altar and collect everyone else's hearts and put them on the altar. Mm-hmm. And that's the main work of the priest and everything else flows from that, mm. right? And, you know, we'll call it the source and the summit, right? Is that we're, we're gathering hearts. We're, we're taking all the sufferings and the joys of the lives of our people and placing on the altar. And then we're, we're giving it back in Holy Communion and they're receiving it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's the, the summit. We're bringing everything of our lives onto the altar. And then it's the source. Everything else is flowing back from it. And so, you know, that's, that's why I say it's the most important thing that we do all day. Even if literally I celebrate mass every day in the chapel here on campus, we've got a beautiful chapel. This used to be the high school seminary for Los Angeles. And so it's a big chapel, Mm -hmm. huge sacristy, love it. Mm -hmm. And every day I have to keep on inviting kids to come to mass. And, you know, every once in a while I get one or two kids and that's where we're at right now. And the Lord's just kind of speaking to my heart, like, yeah, you're going to suffer through this right now, but you know, there'll be a day where, where there's too many, right? Okay. Praise God for that. But for now, even if they don't know what's going on in that chapel every morning, that's the heartbeat of what's happening here on campus. Yeah. And, and everything flows out from, from the grace being, you know, 
the Eucharist is being offered every day on this campus, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. And if we really believe that's the source and summit of our faith, it's the most important thing that's happening during the day. Yeah. That's a beautiful way to put it. They might not know what's happening or they, they do know yeah. what's happening, but they don't recognize the significance mm-hmm. or feel the need to be there. But yet yeah. it's still going to occur. Right. Jesus Christ is, it died on the cross, whether you want to accept that reality or not. <laughs> yeah. Mass mm-hmm. is being said for you. Mass is being offered in that. I think there's something really profound about mass happening in places where people are gathering for mm-hmm, most mm-hmm. of their waking hours of the week, those teenagers are there in that school. And so the fact that mass is happening daily, I think that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I want to dig into this idea of, you know, the mass is, is us remembering Calvary, like us remembering the greatest gift of Christ's body mm-hmm. and his blood shed for us. And then we get to receive that. As a priest, Catholic your whole life, attempted surfer star, and then priesthood. What was it like? I mean, in seminary, you learn how to say the mass. In seminary, mm-hmm. you learn the ins and outs of theology and, and pastoring and all of that. But like, you also got, got to get down to brass tacks. Like, here's what you do with your hands and here's what you say when. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. I've had many, many priest friends over the years who talk about the dry masses that happen or, or the joke that's often made at the neck, the smass that happens because it's a play okay. on some Italian word. What was it like learning how to say the mass? And then kind of the gravity of, I get to, like, I'm not pretending, like, I get to do this. Yeah. Well, I, I think technically the preparation is happening the whole time, mm-hmm. you know, because we're having mass every day and you're not just praying, you're observing and learning. You know, yeah. maybe I should say it the other way. You're not just observing and learning, you're praying. <laughs> but I just, you know, the last year of seminary for us was we were ordained deacons the summer before our last year of seminary. So our first semester before that, our last semester before that was, you know, mass as a deacon, how to celebrate liturgy as a deacon. Mm. And then, you know, during our last year of seminary, it's, you know, how to celebrate liturgy as a priest and kind of going through all the different liturgies, you know, anointing of the sick and baptism. And, you know, we're, we're baptizing a baby doll, you know, we're, we're, we're play acting confessions yeah. and, you know, one of my my older classmates is you know pretending to be an old man who can't hear and he starts yelling at me in you know in the <laughs> the fake confessional yeah and and I like what do I do am I supposed to yell louder or something like that and, you know kind of you know so so we're having fun with it but then you know knowing that it's it's about to get very real and very serious mm-hmm. and so just learning how to celebrate the mass in seminary you know homiletics class is mm-hmm. probably one of the scariest places in seminary <laughs> because you know there's there's no tougher crowd other yeah. than yourself, than your <laughs> classmates. Yeah. And they kind of give us free reign to just, you know, tear each other's homilies apart. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but some of the best homilies, most fun we've ever had with homilies came from those classes. Yeah. And we still remember some of the stuff that classmates came up with. And we're still laughing about, you know, one of our classmates sitting down and doing a children's mass homily and bringing a trash can with a, a half eaten sandwich in it and a $20 bill. And he says, you know, he pulls the sandwich out and says, you know, you guys want this sandwich? No, no, you. Do you want this $20 bill? Yeah, yeah. Well, they came from the same place, you know, uh, uh, kind of talking about our dignity doesn't change when, you know, we feel like we're in the trash sort of things, you know? Yeah. So it, there's so much creativity happening in that space when it comes to like homilies, but then we just grow in our love for the the mass as we're practicing it and, and making our mistakes and realizing that, you know, the way you celebrate mass as a priest in your first year is probably going to be the way you celebrate it for the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and so we did take it very seriously. And then remembering, you know, oh gosh, my first mass, you know, you hear all kinds of different stories. Lots of people have different experiences with mm-hmm. their, their first mass. Mine was such a, a delightful experience. I, like a few weeks before nation, I started planning with a, a youth ministry friend of mine who's also a musician. He was like, you should have a, like a, like a secret first mass. 
Like, what do you mean a secret first mass? I'm like, Let's find like a little convent chapel and, and invite like 20 people and, and just, you know, have your first mass that way. I'm like, mm-hmm. I love this idea. So we started planning. We found a chapel, like an old convent chapel that would have fit max, like 25 people. Mm-hmm. And I started inviting like missionary friends and, and life team friends. And, and I got quickly to like 40 people. Like yeah, we need course. to find a bigger space. Yeah. <laughs> so the Carmelites here in Los Angeles had a space that we could use. And so I did my first mass the night of my ordination. Oh. And just had all my like, like charismatic missionary friends there. It was the Pentecost vigil. And I got my seminarian friends to MC and to altar serve. And so, and so cool. they just kind of, seminarians probably know more about the liturgy than priests do at times. Yeah. And so I'm like, and you then, guys just push me in the right direction. <laughs> you know? And they'll let you know it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I just kind of sat down and heard confessions for an hour that night. Wow. And while my missionary friends were praying over each other, like, what do you need for prayers for at mass right now? And so it just became this beautiful charismatic experience of, of Pentecost. Uh, during the vigil, got my brother and his wife and some other friends to to read, you know, the extended readings. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, like, is this going to be a really emotional experience for me? But for me, the whole time, it was just like, this feels right. You know, mm. not just like, this is what I've been training for, but it's just like, this is, this is what I was made for. Mm. And I, I didn't get emotional. I didn't tear up. I know some, some men do, and that's beautiful that the Lord gives them that gift. But for me, it was just this, this conviction, like, this is right. This is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And so, you know, I, you know, I don't know what mistakes I may have made in that first mass, but I know <laughs> we got through it. And then I celebrated, you know, so that was my not so secret first mass. Right. And then my, my official first mass was at my home parish at St. Monica's in Santa Monica. And it was just, it was a homecoming. I celebrated mass at the, the two masses that my family grew up going to mm-hmm. so the 9.30 AM and the 1.15 PM. And then I went... <laughs> and celebrated mass at the parish my parents were going to at the time. So I had three first masses that day. Um, <laughs> back to back to back. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is the, the depth of how, you know, well, how rich the, the experience of the first few days can be is that, you know, I had those like four masses in the first like 24 hours. And then my first mass that was not a mass of Thanksgiving for my ordination was to can celebrate the funeral mass of a youth minister who kept me close to the church mm. and took me to my first priestly ordination wow. the Monday. So two days after I was ordained, you know, he died the Monday before I was ordained on a Saturday. Wow. And so I'm laying down during ordination saying, you know, Dean, you're not here the way that I want you to be, but yeah. right now I'm calling on the saints. And so I'm not canonizing you, but I'm saying, you know, you're here, not here the way I want you to be. Yeah. And, and so he became such an important uh, intercessor Wow! at that time that the, the litany of saints became so real mm-hmm. for me at that moment. And, and that all made the mass so real that, you know, just from one moment of like, okay, this is not really doing anything because I'm practicing to, oh my gosh, the weight and the responsibility of this, but also to know like God wants to use these hands and this voice, you know, he, he's got a sense of humor, but he can make it happen if anyone can. Yeah. And, and so that was just a, the whirlwind of, you know, the first weekend as a priest mm-hmm. of saying, this is what my priesthood is about, is, is the Mass, and everything else is going to flow from that. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Father Tim. He's an amazing guy, former surfer turned priest who now says the Latin Mass and the ordinary form of the Mass, an amazing guy. You know, speaking of amazing guys, speaking of great priests, on Monday... We are going to have an Ave Explores live stream conversation on the Ave Maria Press Instagram page with Father Blake Britton, a priest of the Archdiocese of Orlando, an amazing guy who wrote a book about the Second Vatican Council, who loves being a priest and who's going to dig into 
the particulars of the mass that you want to know about. Click on down to the link in our show notes and you'll find a survey that you can fill out and you can ask your questions of Father Blake. Maybe why do we sit, stand, and kneel in this particular way? Or why do we say that thing? Or what's your opinion on? And he's going to dig into all of it over on our Ave Explores Live on the Ave Maria Press Instagram page, 1130 on Monday, May 30th. We'd love it if you'd join us for that conversation. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to really get into it with all of these questions that you're asking. So fill out that survey, submit your questions, and we'll see you on Monday on Ave Maria Press's Instagram page at 1130 for a conversation with Father Blake Britton. All right, let's get back to the conversation now with Father Timothy Grumbach. So in the past couple of years, two young men I'm very close to, I was their youth minister. Uh, they grew up around my family. My mom was was one of their confirmation sponsor, and now he is godfather to my second child. So Michael is practically a, a younger brother. <laughs> and it was he came over for coffee a couple of weeks before his ordination. So like everything is set in place, like everything's ready mm-hmm, to go. Yeah. Like we've got invitations have been sent, like oh, things are scheduled, long, all of it. Wait. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was almost yeah. like I was, I, I told him, I was like, I feel like I'm sitting down with like the bride and we're talking about the yeah. wedding mm-hmm. plans, right? Like this is mm-hmm. like, this is, and I, I, for a moment I felt like, okay, am, am I the ordination planner? Like I'm making sure that some of these things are, are, are right. And so he talked about how the ordination is going to happen in the morning, obviously. And then like, the big reception is that evening and it was still kind of in the time of COVID. I don't, I don't even know where we are with all of that right now, but like they, the, where we normally have all of our receptions in the diocese is it was destroyed by one of the hurricanes. So they were now having it at this other event center. And so he said in the afternoon, he's like, I don't know what to do. I was like, well, I mean, it's yeah. You're like waiting for the big party, but like, why, why don't we get a group of people together? Like the younger crowd, and we go to a brewery in town. Like there's this fun brewery. They've got like outdoor seating. Like people can come and go. And I'll talk to the people at the brewery. And there's like a little space upstairs. Like if you want to hear confessions. And he was like, whoa, 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 time out. Like I'm going to hear my first confessions at a <laughs> at a bar. And I was like, no, no. Like and what ended up happening, the more appropriate way that he did it was that post ordination, he walked over to the small day chapel next to the cathedral, set up shop. A bunch of us go through for confession and then all met up at the brewery after the fact. That was the more appropriate yeah. way to do it. But he got to the, so we're all there at the brewery and we're all hanging out and he, you know, he's taking pictures and he's telling people, you know, do I, do you feel any different? Everybody's sniffing his hands. Like we're just you yeah, know, having yeah. this, this moment of joy. And he, he leaned over at one point to Tommy who's sitting there holding a baby and drinking a beer. Like we're all just visiting. And he was like, I like, I want to go home and say mass right now. Like, I just like, I don't want to wait like tomorrow morning at 9am it's going to happen. But like, I don't want to wait. Like, I just want to go home and like say a private mass. And Tommy's like, don't do that. Like you're going to like, but it was very much the same. It's like, I, I was made for this and now I can. And like, why shouldn't I hesitate? Now I have no idea if he did actually go, like I would have no way of knowing, but he said his mass of Thanksgiving at his first parish that he grew up in and where he was confirmed and where he was youth minister in the morning and then that evening at five o'clock, he said his first extraordinary form of the mass because he knows mm-hmm. how to say both forms. And so that's where I want to pivot into this conversation. It's a big lead in to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you, you celebrated your first mass, the Novus Ordo, the ordinary form of the mass years ago when you became a priest and praise God for that. And then in the time of COVID, I want, to, I want you to tell us the story. You discovered this, this rich tradition of our church that some people... They only know like the Twitter version of the Latin Mass, or they only know the YouTube angry yelling. Oh well, we're the real Catholics of the group, and I'd love it if you'd kind of share with our listeners. We've we've gone through so many different parts of the Mass in this series, 
your discovery as a priest, a millennial priest, a surfer priest of the Latin mass and how you were drawn to it and, and kind of a bit of that experience. And, and then we'll get into that a little bit more. Yeah. But I can first tell you that temptation is so real to fall in love with the, the extraordinary form of the mass, the Latin mass, and to say, this is all I want to do now. And, and to learn a little bit about the history of the liturgical reform and say, oh, we made this huge mistake mm-hmm. and to kind of split from that. And I think the worst part about that experience, that temptation would be like, none of what I grew up experiencing was real. Uh, that's mm. I've, I've been working with friends on that, like mm-hmm. just spiritually. Then people trying to convince them that the, the Novus Ordo is this big mistake and that whatever they've experienced and felt, whatever the Holy Spirit has moved them, however the Holy Spirit has moved them in, in the Novus Ordo, like, oh, you, you were just making that up. I'm mm-hmm. like, no, that can't, that cannot be true. Right. That cannot be it. So, so that's, that's something we need to throw out at the very beginning. So yeah, I, I grew up in the Novus Ordo in a parish that I, I dearly love, but you know, they were pretty creative in their liturgy at times. Mm-hmm. You know, I've and got we can stories. Say that. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. And the honesty of like, you know, maybe some of that stuff is what drew me to the church when I was younger. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, we, we, we did the, you know, kids come up around the altar during the consecration and, and some other, you know, cute things. Grew up doing that for your birthday. Yeah. You got to wear your school yeah. t-shirt and you got yeah. to go up around the altar. It was a very nineties <laughs> yeah. thing that was yeah. happening yeah. in the church. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I hope this isn't too scandalous, but no. like they even had a, a peace child where, you know, let us share the peace of Christ with one another. They take a kid from that group every time. You know, it's, <laughs> it's you know, it is yeah. a liturgical abuse of sorts, but it was cute. And it was the most exciting thing that could happen to us as little kids at Mass. Yeah. So, and, one, that, and can I make a clarification? Yeah. The people yeah, that yeah. did these things, I think sometimes it's it's easy 20 years later to to think of it and be like, Okay, that wasn't great, and I, I there's there's got to be nuance, and like I don't I don't think a lot of these things came from place of malice, right? Like a lot of it came out of a desire I to. I, I'll even use the phrase that I've heard some liturgists liven things up, and it's like the mass didn't need to be livened up, but I get why yeah. you maybe thought that because of the way yeah. that the the council was interpreted. So I just want to clarify: we're not yeah. making yeah. fun of yeah. those things; we're just pointing it out. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and I I don't know of any parish that does hospitality as well as my home parish does, yeah. and so. You know, that's, that's their charism, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it, it does draw people in. So that's what I grew up with. And, you know, some would say, oh, then your, your, your swing towards the traditional mass must be like a pendulum swing, you know, like, <laughs> like the, the rebellious kid who says, I'm not doing what my parents did. And, yeah. and uh, you know, who knows, maybe that's how it started, but the, I th- you know, the Lord can use that. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so it was kind of an interest in, in the Latin mass and, and more traditional liturgy was starting to grow in the seminary. And, you know, as a, the, the gateway drug of sorts for so many young seminarians is uh, <laughs> is Rat, Rat Singer's Spirit of the Liturgy. You know? On my shelf, right behind <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Read it many times. Yeah, and we had a new liturgy teacher come in while we were in seminary who, who was introducing us to these things. And, and you know, he was teaching us the Novus Ordo very beautifully and, and said, you know, if your Latin's up to par, I can teach you, you know, how to do the Latin Mass. I don't know if he had any takers or has yet, but that was, you know, that became an option for mm-hmm. us in seminary. You know, maybe there were some voices in the seminary that were kind of against that and may still still be, but you know, I'm I'm seeing some beautiful flowering of, you know, this this love for a traditional liturgy. Um, but also, you know, to let the two liturgies, you know, mutually enrich one another. That was mm-hmm. that was a uh, Pope Benedict's hope and his language mm-hmm. that the two forms would enrich one another. And you know, there are the temptations in the seminary to fight against the Novus Ordo and 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 whatnot. Those temptations are there. Let's not pretend they aren't. But I think it's also a place where, you know, the two forms can learn to enrich one another and, you know, young men learn how to sacrifice, you know, those, those temptations. So, mm-hmm. 
so I grew up with the Novus Ordo, fell in love with the mass in the Novus Ordo, you know, wanted to become a priest for the Novus Ordo. So yeah, that's that's where my journey towards sainthood began and continues. Mm-hmm. But it was during the the pandemic and the lockdowns here in Los Angeles, which were you know uh, particularly strong compared mm-hmm. to some places and lasted longer than other places. And so there was there were many many masses. I know I, I probably did close to two hundred masses by myself, wow. you know, live streamed on my Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. I watched a few. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, probably somewhere around 200 or so. I blew up my Instagram in the middle of all that. So I lost count. And so kind of in the middle of that, you know, the, the beginning of that time, you know, I had this weird thing happen where I was having some heart issues. And I think it was just a lot of stress from the situation mm-hmm. and, and other, you know, other genetic things. And, you know, I'm okay. You know, I spent a night in the hospital and they said, well, it's not going to kill you. So be careful. Like, okay. <laughs> Don't go so, so kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So kind of dealing with all of that stuff and, you know, the lockdowns and trying to figure out what does my priesthood look like when I can't go to anybody, mm-hmm. you know, people can't come to the church and they're making it really hard for the church to go to the people sort of thing. We, it's easy to look back and say we were, you know, say things about that, but mm-hmm. uh, we didn't know what was going on. Right. Day. Yeah. So with all that in mind, I spent the first two or three weeks of lockdown, just playing video games. You know? And then, you know, when I got that out of my system, you know, figuring out, okay, what can I do with you know my heart doing this thing and, and not being able to go out and, and whatnot and worrying, is this going to make me uh, even more susceptible to the, to the illness? Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm going to start working on my Latin again and, you know, learn how to say the Latin mass. This is the time, mm-hmm. you know, trying to see this as a time that the Lord has gifted me with to, to enter more deeply into the prayer of the mass in this way. Our mass schedules changed a lot at the parish that I was at. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of extra time Sunday mornings. So I would carpool with friends to the FSSP parish here mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Shout out to St. Vitus. They're, they just keep growing and growing. Yeah. They're doing amazing things here in LA. And so Sunday mornings at 7 a.m., or like by 6.30, we'd be out there on the sidewalk praying the rosary. We'd be in, you know, in their tent outside. They can't go back into their church even now because their community has grown so much and their church is too wow. small. Yeah. So they're still outside at St. Vitus. And so every, every Sunday morning for a while, I was there, again, not just observing and learning, but praying the Latin Mass. Mm-hmm. And so it was something that was happening in community was, you know, my friends drew me into it and said, we, you know, would you think about learning this, this Mass? For us and for our community. And, you know, so I got to know the priests there. I got to know the community there. Still good friends with them, even though I, I can't make it out there on Sundays like I used to. And so the learning experience was not just something that was happening in books. It was something that was happening at the altar. Mm-hmm. And and so I began by just kind of being a part of the congregation and, and kneeling and standing with everyone and praying. And then you know, eventually I'm sitting in choir and I'm helping to distribute communion. They give me a, a humeral veil and a, and, a, and a canopy and some candles. And then I'm and suddenly, what you know, at the midnight mass for Christmas, I'm you know processing the Eucharist back to the tabernacle wow. with all with all this beautiful reverence, and I'm like, this, oh, this is so beautiful. This is, you know, this is where my heart is right now. And the first Latin mass that I ever celebrated, you know, so many of those masses were private. The first one was August 28th. It was the feast of Saint Augustine mm. because that was the parish I was living at. I was I was thinking of waiting until like the exaltation of the cross, and and you know, but a few weeks before, I'm like. No, this is the day. And it took me an hour and a half to get through my first low mass. (laughs) (laughs) Which for clarifications usually take like 45 minutes to an hour. Maybe. Some say even faster. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I can do a low mass, private low mass in 25 minutes now. Yeah. Uh, So that's the, that's, yeah, Yeah. that's the kind of difference. You know, I just, you know, at that time was just like, so like, all right, just want to make sure I do everything right. And I didn't have anyone to guide me through it. I was Mm -hmm. just, you know, praying through it by myself and, and it was beautiful. And I was exhausted by the end of it. 
But now like the fastest I can do it is 25 minutes. So you hear this, like the jokes about like old Irish priests doing it in like 10 or 15 oh, minutes. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I have no pass. idea how that's possible. <laughs> I have no idea how that's possible. But that could be a good segue into talking about the liturgical reform is yeah. that the low mass culture. So if, you know, if you're unfamiliar with the, the Latin mass, I am no expert. Mm-hmm. You know, I know it from the inside as one who celebrates the, right, right. the Latin mass, but, but I didn't grow up in a Latin mass parish. I'm not part of a Latin mass parish. My main experience is as, you know, is attending some high masses, celebrating some low masses. And mm-hmm. so I know it from the inside in a certain way, but I'm no expert on it. Right. Is, is that the reforms were necessarily not because there was something wrong with the mass. You know, this is the ideal vision of the reform, right, right. but because there was, there was something happening in the laity and in the clergy that needed reform in our hearts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so maybe if there were some overindulgences in the reform, it happened because maybe that vision was lost. Yeah. Was that, you know, we need to change the externals mm-hmm. rather than the ch- any changing of the externals happening for the service of what was happening in us. Yeah. And so if we got rid of anything, it was supposed to you know, be building something up within us. So the, the, the main reason for the reform, ideally, was the reform of the hearts of those who celebrated the Mass. Yeah. yeah. And so anything that's changed, it looks like, oh, it's, it's to make it easier. It's like, no, no, it was, it was supposed to make it so that we better know how to offer our hearts on the altar with the uh, immaculate sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself as the high priest, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, kind of standing in both of these worlds at the moment of the Novus Ordo and of the traditional Latin Mass, I can see the way that the main reason for the Mass for us is to be, uh, to offer ourselves along with Jesus Christ on the altar and so be transformed. One of my favorite little things of theology, I'll try to run through it really quickly, like mm-hmm, a very mm-hmm. short version of it is Cardinal Ratzinger gave this beautiful lecture at a Eucharistic Congress about the Eucharist as a sacrament of transformation. And so this is at the heart of my love for the Eucharist, is he says that, it, you know, there's several stages of transformation. First is that God could take uh, death and turn it into life. So Jesus on the cross takes death, turns it into life. And because he could do that, he could transform the greatest act of injustice into the greatest act of love self and self-gift. Because he could do that, he could take the night before bread and wine and change it into his body and his blood. Mm-hmm. And so that when we receive his body and his blood, we're, we're transformed from an individual into a part of the body of, of Christ himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because we're not just individuals anymore, we're transformed into a bar, part of a body, which is so we become an or- organism of self-gift, he says. It's beautiful. Mm. And then that's not even where it ends, is that because we as a church have been transformed into the body of Christ, all of creation itself becomes a dwelling place of God. And that all begins from the cross. Yeah. And that's what we celebrate. And so you said, you know, we remember the sacrifice of Calvary. And, and that word remember is just so rich mm-hmm. in, in the idea. It's not just something we do mentally, like overthinking about it. Right. But it's somewhere in between a memory and time travel. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, we're not literally going back into the past, but in a certain way, mystically and seriously, the past is rushing into our present. Mm. And that's what we experience is that it's not just a meal. But in a certain sense, it's not just a sacrifice. It's yeah. both. It can't be one without the other. Yeah. It's such a beautiful way of putting it. The The past is rushing into this moment. I, I think that's why there's been this attraction to, I'll call it the old mass, the extraordinary form. Because yeah, yeah. I'll lay out how, and, and the conversations my husband and I have frequently yeah. had, because we, we don't publicize it very often. We frequent both as we feel called to. We go to a parish that has a very reverent Novus Ordo, even occasionally doing an ad orientem Novus Ordo. So the priest, the, the colloquial phrase, the priest has turned his back to the, the congregation. Yeah. He's just facing the same direction as the yeah. congregation. It's the better way of putting it. But it's all still in English. It's all still like, it's everything you would recognize and know from a regular Sunday mass in, in a post-Vatican II world. He's just not facing the same way 
that we would expect him to. But there's been this draw into a more reverent Novus Ordo or a draw to the Latin Mass because it feels as if that brings me closer to the reverent worship that does help me remember more. <laughs> and and there was a drift to a very, not a bad thing, a very earthy form of the mass at times, which almost mm-hmm. felt casual. Now, this is not an attack yeah. in any way, shape, or form on Novus Ordos that maybe do not have the smells, bells, lace, and whistles mm-hmm. of, of the Latin mass. It's more just an acknowledgement of, I'll, I'll name it, there's a parish in my diocese, you go there, and it feels differently there than it does feel at another parish where... They're both obviously bringing the Eucharist to people, but the rushing of the past into our heart happens in a different way. There is nothing wrong with it happening in two different ways. It it is the church breathing with both lungs in a very real way, which is that image that that Pope Benedict was so famous for, I think, kind of allowing us to to reflect on. I'm even having a hard time, because I I always worry that when we talk about this, like, I'm going to offend somebody. I'm going to offend somebody that goes to Latin Mass because they think I hate trads, or I'm going to offend somebody yeah. who goes to the Novus Ordo Mass and who would never want to go to a Latin Mass because I'm somehow telling them, like, oh, well, yours is too earthy, it's not reverent enough. And it's actually like, no, there's there's beauty in both. And why I wanted to talk to you, Father, is because, like, you are a living example of there's beauty in both. Being able to say one doesn't mean I stop saying the other or vice versa. How how did you kind of bring those things together in your understanding and in your life? And and you're on a high school campus, so like, how does it even inform the way that you're ministering to a bunch of teenagers? Yeah, not too long ago, last semester, our juniors who take their sacraments courses, and so they're talking about the Eucharist. They they found out wait, there was a, a different kind of mass yeah. uh, a long time ago. Can Father Tim do that for us? They had no idea what they were asking for. Yeah, yeah. they didn't. <laughs> They didn't, they don't know about the liturgy wars and no, the reform. And, and Twitter you know, they does were just, that, right. Yeah. They were just beginning to learn about that there was a reform mm-hmm. and they, you know, they seem to like me and they're like, can he do that for us? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, and I like, I got so excited. Like you guys want a Latin mass. You don't know what you're asking for. And so I was able to kind of walk them through some of the differences. And yeah. one of them was, yeah, I'll be at Orientum. So we're going to, I, I won't be facing you. We'll be facing the same direction. You know, there's going to be a lot of silence because again, you know, I got distracted, you know, the difference between low mass and high mass, low mass is a lot quieter. High mass has the choir and, mm-hmm. and a lot more you know, expression. And so that's what the reform was aiming for was to get out of a low mass culture where like the high point of the week was this very quick, very quiet mm-hmm. version of the, the celebration. So, um, so I offered them a low mass and said, you know, I'm going to be at Orientum. There's gonna be a lot of silence and it's all going to be in Latin. And you guys don't know Latin. I barely, you know, I know some Latin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I don't speak Latin, right? And so I, I prepared them for this. And so the general consensus was like that was that was cool, that was neat, that was different. We mm-hmm. liked that. We liked the quiet. We liked how reflective and prayerful it was. And so that's something you'll hear a lot from people who go to the Latin Mass. And so that's kind of informed my what I like to think is that I think a lot of people, especially you know the younger generations, are drawn to the Latin Mass right now. And you know, I have to word this rightly because it can be taken the wrong way, but I think it demands more of us. Mm-hmm. Um, not that the Novus Ordo can't demand more of us, right? but for someone like me, like I need like physical constraints to do something. So the Latin mass demands more of me physically, mm-hmm. more genuflections, more signs of the cross. I'm speaking a different language. So it, it demands more of me mentally and physically yeah. in, in, in some ways than the Novus Ordo does. And so I think that we're in a generation of young people who wants to give more of themselves but social media and technology and all this is, is kind of you know taking away some of these opportunities from them. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, they're longing for something more that demands more of them 
And I, so I think I've seen a lot of young people drawn to Latin mass because it demands more of them in yeah. a certain way, you know, yeah. not in all ways, but, but in certain ways you're, you're kneeling longer. You may not understand the language that's being spoken. Mm-hmm. And so you just, there's a certain, like more attention is needed if you're, if you're going to give yourself on the altar in that way. And so I think that in a certain sense, the Latin mass has become a liturgical expression of our, of this generation's desire to give more of themselves. Yeah. And they're finding that they can give more of themselves on the altar through this expression. And, and others are finding they can give more of themselves through the Novus Ordem too. So I'm not saying, you know, this is yeah. the only way to give more of yourself on the altar, but I think for a lot of people, that greater desire to be more sacrificial is finding a liturgical expression in the, in the Latin mass. Yeah. Th- you know, that, that's a great point about it. it. There's a demand for wanting more to be expected of us because we mm-hmm. do live in a, a very placating, almost, you know, just like mosey your way through life culture. If you don't like it, just give up on it. If you don't understand it, just like forget about it or just move on to something different. My, you know, I, I mentioned Tommy's a teacher and he'll frequently tell me like if the second his students get discouraged on something, they'll just like, oh, I can't do it. Like I can't is the vocabulary of certain people in the world today. I, and I don't think that's just a Gen Z thing. I think that's just across the board because of just what's happening in our world. Yeah. And and there is, so the first time I ever went to a Latin mass, I it was like, not, I, I'm going to joke and say against my will. I had no idea it was happening. <laughs> and I walk in and I realize I am, I am, I did not have a veil on. I was very out of place. I had no idea what was going on. I was like surprised when it was time for communion. I was like, oh, we get to go up there now. But it was a jarring and a beautiful way getting to receive communion at the communion rail. And at the time, our diocese cathedral, our diocesan cathedral had removed communion rails as many churches did. So we had temporary ones brought back in before they reinstalled the ones that were found in like an attic. I have no idea how they were able to get these marble communion rails. <laughs> at least rails they weren't destroyed. <laughs> they were not destroyed. They were they were found and they were put back. But before they were put back, we had these. And so I, I remember thinking to myself, walking all the way up, like, I'm going to hate this. I'm going to hate this. I've been receiving communion on my hands since I was in the second grade. Like, I'm going to hate this. I'm going to hate this. I'm going to hate this. And immediately felt something like mentally shift as I realized I was, I was putting myself into a posture of humility to receive the King of Kings. I'll be honest. I hated how much I liked it (laughs) because I felt like I was betraying my earthy sense of Catholicism. And like, I, I thought back to it's, it's almost, I feel weird even sharing this, but I used to play my violin at the life teen mass at the parish that I grew up in. And like, it was like the rule among our choir was music can never stop. And so the Eucharistic minister would often come over and like, I would receive communion with my violin under my neck and take it in my hand and like pop it in my mouth like a cracker. And when I thought as I'm receiving Jesus on my, on my knees at this temporary communion reel, my head immediately went there to, I cannot believe I used to receive Jesus so casually. Like, I cannot believe this was just like a, don't stop the music, even for the King of Kings. And so I made a subtle shift in my mind of, I'm going to try to receive communion on the tongue. I'm not going to go so far as to kneel down in the middle of the communion line, because I'll probably fall on father when I try to stand back up, but I can receive on the tongue. And I've been receiving on the tongue since. And practically with children, it's much easier because I can hold hands down and just receive on the tongue. And then when a communion rail is available to receive at the communion rail, which I find to be much more efficient than even our Americanized way of just lining up. But even like subtle things like that, I think that can inform both sides of this way that we worship. Jesus is Jesus is Jesus. If you want to receive on the hand, if you want to receive on the tongue, the church allows for both. But when you start to recognize the gift 
one and and recognize the circumstances or recognize that like even just in implementing the the Latin mass parts or even just chanting the mass parts in English in this very universal this is how we sing it every church in the diocese nobody gets confused wherever they go you start to realize like the the reform happened in such a way was interpreted in certain ways we're now at this new phase i think of of recognizing how the two can inform that there's a great gift in the both and of our church Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- that brings up one of my favorite images of the reform. I might be just out of my mind here, but as a surfer, I, I actually have an analogy. Yeah. You know, I could be totally out of my mind, but let's do it. <laughs> so in the surfing world, there was a, a revolution right around the same time as the liturgical reforms, you know, the 60s and the 70s. Yeah. And they called it the shortboard revolution. And so mm-hmm. every surfboard before that was a longboard. And it was all about a certain way of surfing where, you know, you, you use your feet to move the board around in the wave and it's all about using the power of the wave and, and this very traditional stylish thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, it all becomes very punk rock. You have the short boards and they start cutting up the long boards in half and making the short boards out of those. Wow. And so they're, they're literally destroying their tradition in order to progress forward. Mm. And you, you can look at, you know, some of the liturgy that way, like, you know, destroying the communion rails in, in order to, you know, bring the people closer to the altar, you know, right. that kind of thing. But, you know, in the like 90s, early 2000s, these teenagers started finding some of the old longboards that were left behind. And they started riding these old longboards with the old style, but putting some new twist on it. So they were able to use the punk rock attitude of the mm-hmm. shortboard revolution and kind of incorporate that mute and let the two forms mutually enrich one another. Yeah. And eventually they started creating new longboards that look a little bit like shortboards. So they were able to use the tradition and the progression and create something new. And so I'm, I'm this weird sense of, I'm not really a, a reform guy. I'm not really a reform of the reform guy. I'm not a trad, but I would love to see almost like a new, <laughs> a new reform where you, you take what we've learned about mm. ourselves through the liturgy over the last few decades. You take what is the great tradition of the church and you kind of organically begin anew mm. and create something that is a true mutual enrichment of mm-hmm. the traditional Latin mass and the Novus Ordo. I don't know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. If that means like, like a straight up, like new revolutionary reform where we just, we just do the reform again. We start over from the, yeah. you know, the Which, 62 missile or the, yeah. I, I mean, I, I almost feel like that is happening in some spots or that, that, mm-hmm. you know, we've got this Eucharistic revival project and there's certainly conversations happening of reverence and the need to elevate. I mean, I, I, I had a conversation with somebody not long ago where like the one thing that they hope comes out of the Eucharistic revival is that parishes implement adoration chapels. And and in my head, I'm like, in Southwest Louisiana, we've got a dozen of them. So I guess that's just something that needs to hit other parts of the country. But it's everybody's kind of got their agendas walking through it. And I think kind of the universal thing at the bottom of it is, how do we get people to realize this matters and the mass Mm -hmm. is the most important thing? And and I, I feel like the two together, the Latin mass, the Novus Ordo, the extraordinary form, the ordinary form, whatever phrases you want to use, the trads and the the not trads and the <laughs> radical ones and the far, far whatever whatever phrases or whatever categories that at the heart of it is just trying to get people to love Jesus and recognizing that the mass is the purest way to approach Christ. Yeah, I'll bring this back into it, but not to go too far aside with the Eucharistic revival mm-hmm. is I'm really excited they're doing that, but I, but part of me is also like it's been going on for decades. Mm-hmm. It started a long time ago. It's almost like the bishops are just catching up. I don't yeah. know. Oh, no, I agree. Uh, I yeah. agree. Yeah, <laughs> As yeah, usual. Yeah. yeah. I've been, I've been doing stuff with life teen since, you know, right when yeah. I got out of high school and I, you know, adoration with life teen was something that changed my life as a, yeah. you know, as a college kid. Yeah. I was down in Mexico for a wedding back in November 
And, you know, I walked into a church where all of a sudden they were starting a Eucharistic procession and the abuelitas there were like applauding for Jesus. I'm like, the Eucharistic revival is here. People are applauding for Jesus coming into the church. So I'm excited they're doing that. But again, you know, I think the young generations are already in touch with that. They're there. Yeah. 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 And they're finding it in the liturgy. And and so that that brings it back to, you know, the, the young people want to give more. And they're finding that in in the Mass. I love that. I love that. Father, we've wrapped up every conversation thus far asking our guests what your favorite part of the Mass is. And so I'm going to ask you specifically, when you say the Latin Mass, what is your favorite part? Aside from the words of consecration themselves, Mm. the offering of the gifts on the altar is so important to me. This became the most important thing to me, you know, for the Novus Ordo while I was in the seminary studying. We got this little worksheet from one of our teachers, and I use it on almost every retreat that I go to now. <laughs> it's so that you know what prayers you're lifting up during each part of the Mass. Mm. You can, you know, pray before Mass and write it down if you want to, your sufferings and your your joys. Mm. So that when, when the bread is offered, and the prayers are very are much clearer in the Latin Mass. And this is one of the things I appreciate a little bit more about the Latin Mass is how mm-hmm. clear the offertory prayers are as a sacrifice of yourself on the altar. And so it's like offering you everything for my sins, my failures, my weaknesses. And so like when the bread is lifted up, you know, that's where our, our brokenness goes, right? Bread, bread is broken. It's easy to remember. Mm-hmm. And then when, and then when the chalice is lifting up, you know, that's a cup of blessing. So what are the, what are the things you want to celebrate? Because God wants to celebrate those with you too. And so that that's clear in those prayers as well, is that you have, you know, the suffering, you have the joy, your whole heart is being placed on the altar at that time. And then once that's offered, you know, we pray from Daniel chapter three, where the three young men are in the flames mm. and they have nothing left to offer but themselves. And that's the prayer that we offer every mass once the gifts have been placed on the altar. You know, with humble spirit and contrite heart, may we be accepted by you, O Lord, and may our sacrifice in your sight this day be pleasing to you, Lord God. You know, not our sacrifice, like these things we're putting on the altar, but the sacrifice of us. Mm-hmm. And so when I know that I'm with people who know like, oh, this is the part of the mass where I offer myself. And mm-hmm. when I say yeah. we lift them up to the Lord, like we know what we're lifting up to the Lord. And so for me, that's the most important part of the mass, aside from the consecration and communion itself, is it's not half time, it's not intermission, it's not a bathroom break. The offering of the gifts on the altar is the beginning of the sacrifice mm-hmm. of Calvary. It's yeah. it's you know, it's and and it's a chance for us to put our hearts on the altar as well. And so that's my favorite part of the mass yeah. is the the placing of the gifts on the altar. Yeah. I um I, I had a conversation with somebody once about tithing of all things. Mm-hmm. And and they made the comment how it was so important for kids to get a chance to put a dollar in the basket. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, yeah, I mean, if I don't yeah. give my child a dollar or a quarter, we, we have a meltdown. So yeah, to prevent yeah. everybody from hearing <laughs> the song of her people, we have a dollar ready to go. And he said, but it's it's this physical moment where, you, you, yeah, it's just a dollar. Yeah, it's just an envelope. But we're, like you're supposed to think to yourself, I'm giving part of my treasure and that's then supposed to kind of trigger, like, I then am going to place my heart and, and like, I'm then I'm walking up there with my physical body. Like, this is not some past. Life Teen wrote a blog ages ago. I've mentioned it on the before. Like, mass is not a spectator sport. Like, I am mm-hmm. fully engaged. I, I love that that is your answer because I think it's a great yeah. reminder for us all. Father, yeah. where can we follow you on social media and, and learn a little bit more about the great work that you're doing over in L.A.? Yeah. So, so I'm back on Twitter and I'm back on Instagram and my school kids make fun of me. I'm still on the Facebook apparently. So, <laughs> the Facebook, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you can find me at just Father Tim Grumbach or Father Grumbach on, on the social media. And I'm, I'm kind of, you know, 
I trusted the Lord and said, I'm going to tear down my social media and let you build it back up. Build it back and up. So just, Praise God. So I, I, yeah. So I'm just trying to do it right this time. Awesome. So, um, awesome. so you can find me, find me there. We'll yeah. put the links down in our show notes. Father, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Katie, thanks so much. I remember following Father Tim on Twitter during COVID when he was talking about learning how to say the Latin Mass. And I remember this this one very distinct interaction that he had with somebody on Twitter. And, and the person was criticizing him, was saying that you learning the Latin Mass is taking our church backwards and how dare you. It was, it was a really cruel thing. And that's Twitter, right? People say cruel things on Twitter all the time because they can just lob an insult and they don't necessarily think that it's going to hurt anybody on the other side. And Father Tim responded with such grace and dignity. And he basically told them, trying to understand the Mass more never hurt anybody. And that's what learning the Latin Mass is doing for me. It's helping me understand the Mass more. I I thought that was so beautiful that this priest was sharing his journey in a public way, but then was also able to, to give us a peek into his heart and how this was helping him become a better priest. And I think that's something that we really need to hold in our heads and in our hearts when we think about the Latin Mass, we think about the ordinary form of the Mass, we think about the way that we worship at the altar, the way it transforms us, the way that regardless of whether it's in English or in Latin or some combination of the two, that we are approaching God to receive him. And that is a gift. And to be grateful for it and to appreciate the effort that goes into allowing us to do that and to recognize that the different forms of, of arriving at the altar, they matter. But regardless of which form it is, we are being given a gift. You know, as we've been digging into this series on the Mass, I myself have, have come to a, a new appreciation of, of worship. A new awareness of the great gift of, of being able to approach the altar. This past Sunday, my kids were coughing up a lung, and so Tommy and I, who both felt fine... We split up going to Mass, and I went to 7 a.m. Mass, which is our typical Mass, without my kids. It's usually at 50 to to 55 minutes because there's no music, and and I actually was able to focus on prayer and worship in these moments because I didn't have my kids to wrangle. And as I'm listening to the homily and as Father's talking about prayer in our lives, I, I just said a quick prayer of gratitude for the opportunity to be at the Mass to pray. And I would encourage you to maybe think about that and do that at some point this week, to thank God for the gift of being able to pray at all, especially in the Mass, especially as we approach the Eucharist, especially as we recognize that this worship, this liturgy of the Word, this liturgy of the Eucharist, this breaking bread together, transformed by the body of Christ, that this is not something we should ever take for granted and is the most remarkable gift. And to to be grateful for it. Eucharist itself, of course, meaning thanksgiving. So to be grateful for that opportunity. All of the great content that we're creating to help you understand and dig into the Mass more is available on our website, AveMariaPress.com. We would love it if you would go there and, and listen to everything, read everything, download everything, dig into stuff with us on our Instagram page, watch our Instagram Live this coming Monday with Father Blake Britton. We know you're going to enjoy it. We're so glad that you were with us this week. We'll be back next week with even more amazing content about the Mass, including conversations with the Nativity Parish guys up in Baltimore, Maryland, 
and and some other amazing things. So stick around for a whole lot more. We're so grateful that you're here. Make sure you give us a follow, a rating, and a review. We'd love it if you'd share it with other folks. Subscribe so you don't miss anything. We'll see you next week. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.